All right, guys, we made it to episode 36 of the Homestead Shop Talk podcast with Al from Lumina Acres, Ben from Holler Homestead, and myself, Jason, from So The Land. And today is an exciting day because we have our first guest, uh, Billy from Perma Pastures Farm. What's up, Billy? Hey, what's up, guys? It's a joy to be with you, man. It's it's a real joy to be a part of your uh, Black Panther party here. So, uh... <laughs> okay, so tell us a little bit about yourself, Billy. I, I assume some people here listening know who you are, but in case they don't. Well, um, well, I'm a friend of you guys, and it's a joy to meet Al finally. I mean, I listen to you guys' podcasts. I listen to every episode, and it's always a, it's always it always it's it's a joy because it honestly feels like we're sitting in, literally in a shop talking about what it is we do. It's very soothing, and uh, I'm I'm so glad you guys created this podcast. But about me. Um, in a nutshell, I'm just a Christian American, heterosexual, pro-gun, liberty-minded permaculture designer, and um, that's really it in a nutshell. Um, we like to grow our own food. We like to teach permaculture. We like to. Um, I mean, I have so many varied interests. I mean, I got a background. I'm a 25-year IBEW journeyman electrician, former talk show host at KMBZ in Kansas City, uh, former butcher butcher at the local pig in Kansas City, and. Um, you know, just a all-around wannabe Renaissance guy like you guys. So it's, um, uh, you know, just that's the beauty about being in a space like this is that you automatically have something in common with the people you're sharing the space with, just by virtue of the fact that we all kind of live lives that echo one another. Yeah, for sure. And I figured, awesome. you know, you'd be the perfect person to have on because our topic for today is feeding animals with little or no cost. Which I have some questions about Billy, so we, we could uh, uh, talk about that a little bit later. But first, um, you know, we'll talk about our week. See what, uh, if we have anything going on this week that we want to talk about. How about you, Al? Did you put together that walking cooler? No, not yet. That'll be after we finish the barn. We've still been picking away at the barn, working on figuring out feed storage. I want to be organized. I don't know about you guys, but like my feed storage area is usually like a huge mess, and I got empty bags here piles of stuff here there and i got hay strings all over the place yeah and i'm tripping all over everything so i'm trying to make this barn organized so at least at first i'll have everything kind of where it goes and then after that i'll probably get thrown all over the place but trying to figure that stuff out and just trying to i don't know get through this cold weather you guys are all in t-shirts you're making me kind of jealous over there <laughs> yeah i got sunburnt today I was 40s today. I was like in a sweatshirt, and I thought that was nice. It felt warm today. What was your highs of high temp today? Do I want to know? Uh, I I don't actually know if it broke 70, but it felt like it. Okay, felt like it. Nice. We yeah, have 50s I'm, tomorrow. I'm 2,000 feet, about maybe a little bit, about 2,000 feet higher than those guys, and it was almost 70 up here. So it was. Oh wow! Well. You guys must be itching to plant your garden soon then even though you're not supposed to that is the truth it's very hard to resist the urge to start sticking stuff in the ground we've been starting to look at what kind of animals we want to add to the homestead we haven't got anything yet but we're getting spring fever and we're getting closer and closer to having the barn done so i'm assuming we'll be getting some new critters soon so it'll be nice to hear what billy has to say about how to feed these things for little money that's what everybody wants to know i think right <laughs> That's what we do. And, you know, you can't think of a better. We've been at this a long time as far as showing people how to do this. But, man, with the prices of everything. I listened to you guys' podcast, and I was hearing Ben talking about getting materials for the thing over there. And I was just in 
lows the other day and I'm like, good night. These, everything is going higher and higher and higher and I can't think of a better time for people to learn how to lower that feed cost. I mean, you know, when you get, I know we're not getting into it yet, but um, you know, when you get down to brass tacks on chickens and things like that, you're really not money ahead at all buying feed at the store. You just have the peace of mind knowing where it came from. So yeah, that's what we do. We, we basically find ways, clever ways, hopefully to mitigate those costs. Yeah, that's, that's been my week. So nothing super exciting. Fun stuff over here. Yeah. Uh, we've been doing some fun stuff. So we, uh, we did a little bit of garden prep because the weather's been so nice. Uh, and then in the meantime, I've just been getting my hustle on building this addition. Uh, we have the foundation done. Uh, we're moving on to uh, framing the floor. And if everything goes right, we'll have the uh, the platform built this week. Honestly, it should just take a nice. couple days. But, like, they're threatening rain in the next couple days and stuff like that. And so we'll see. Uh, other than that, like, it's just been... Like, I think we spent a day in the garden. We planted some stuff. Meg planted some peas. Um, I uh, I helped Brett get a bed ready. Just stuff like that. And then in the meantime, it's just been all, all uh, a lot of trips to Lowe's. There's been a lot of trips to Lowe's in the past week. So, yeah, that's that's kind of more or less <laughs> my yet. past week in a nutshell. How about you, Billy? You, you, what are you doing at your, your place? I haven't been in your place in a while. So I have no idea. Yeah, you guys won't recognize it. The whole side of the mountain we've cleared off, and we started off using the pigs and then the sheep, and then of course we had to go in and do, in accordance with the great Sepp Holzer, you know, everything the animals don't do, you have to do. So we went in there, did that, and now um, went through, did a little bit of seeding. But I'll tell you what's really astonishing is uh, going through there, and what we've done lately is. Um, put out a lot of compost extract and we're seeing all the all the thorns thistles briars all those things that are clear indication that your ground is messed up from the feed up is basically disappeared so far and we're seeing nothing but the things we planted so i'm I'm, i couldn't be more pleased about it but there's that going on and you know it's just uh as you know man it's just a constant there's never a boring day on a farm so it's just a constant right now reclaiming more what we got we got a lot of land but we're really gaining bits and pieces of it every year and then and try not to lose it to nature itself so that's you know you guys understand the struggle all too well but that's exactly what our main focus has been on just gaining more ground and um you know just trying not to lose any and what we're seeing is astonishing recovery from soil that was absolutely decimated. And these are things that I hopefully wanna tell everybody else about how we're going about it because it's like buying more land. If you have land that's unusable, well, when you do recover that land, Joel Salatin 101, it's like getting money from home without writing. Mm -hmm. So that's exactly where our focus is right now is just covering more land and uh, making it, putting it into production. You have any, what, what animals do you have right now? Right now we're down to um, because we're focused in almost entirely on infrastructure this year, we're only down the sheep and chickens. And that's the way we're going to keep it for a little while because right now we got seven freezers out there and every single one of them is filled to the brim. And there's just two of us here. So we're um, trying, to, trying to make 
you know, and I got I got this uh, ram out here that's going to have to graduate to the freezer anyway, and I'm I'm literally making that freeze dryer run day and night just to try to get room for this um, for this new animal. And you would think with seven doggone freezers going that we would at least save a little bit of space, but man, it's it's amazing how you know how little you can go through. <laughs> oh yeah. Unless you're the holler homestead where, you know, they could probably get a cow in a month. Uh, that's actually pretty accurate. We're, uh, I'm having to pump the brakes on how often we eat beef because I'm watching the steak supply dwindle down to nothing. I was like, uh, we were talking the other day. I was like, you realize we're going to have to buy beef by, like, August, right? And Meg was like, yeah, I know. That's just the way it goes. We got plenty of pork, though, so maybe we'll switch it up. So a question for you, Billy. On your, you're using the extract to change versus the pH level in your soil, so it's not so the thorns and bristles don't like it. No, it's not so much the pH; it's um, it's the soil micro microbiology. Um, so we all got trained in my family from Dr. Elaine Ingham, and got certified. And so what we realize is that in a perfect pasture setting, your bacteria and fungi should be about fifty-fifty. But every every time we test it, no matter whose property we test including our own, it's not 50-50. So, and then in your food forest settings, you want your ratio to be um, 10 to one or 100 to one in a food forest. And then in an old growth forest, all of which we have here, you want it to be up to about 1,000 to one. So what we're realizing is that in the very bad denuded soil where you see briars and you know thorns and things like that, there's almost no fungal component. So through this compost extract, we're able to kick up that fungal component in record time. I'm talking like a difference within two weeks. I mean, looking at it under a microscope and then seeing no fungal component to literally seeing it change within two weeks. So we're, we're seeing things that are, that would ordinarily, if you were to use, and it works, if you were to use, let's say Greg Judy's model, it'll get you there, but it'll take you a year or two, maybe three, depending on your commitment. We're seeing the same progress using that means within a month, and it's insane. It's I, I'm afraid to even talk about it until we get in the spring because I don't think anybody's going to believe it. So now do you think it'll keep the bryas from coming back too then? Is that kind of the goal of it? Well, it, it's, it's even better than that. We have this very invasive grass that was brought in by the government called Chinese silvergrass. It's all over western North Carolina. And... It grows, it, my wife figured out that it thrives in a highly bacterial environment. Well, what are, our, what are most of our pasture settings? Highly bacterial, full sun, high compaction. And so what we've realized is if we go there, we cut it, it is this, it, I mean, it is the absolute scourge of Western North Carolina. Everybody around us says, we don't know what to do with it. We don't know how, nothing but on this earth will eat this stuff except for a water buffalo. And once it takes root, they say you can't get rid of it. Well, we're finding out that as we've turned, Jason and uh, Jason and Ben have been here and they've seen like my food forest down front. That was all Chinese silvergrass. Because we made it all fungal, my wife realized that, gee, if we turn things more fungal, will this stuff not want to come back? And that's exactly what we're finding out. This could be the answer. Well, you know what? I could look at this as a greedy capitalist and say, hmm, a whole lot of people got a lot of Chinese silvergrass and a whole lot of pasture. I wonder if I could get it for real cheap and then turn it around. Or I could go to my neighbors and say, you know what? you got a problem. 
I think we might have a solution here. And then they can use my place because they knew what it was like before. And now they don't see that silver grass here anymore. And it's all a matter of changing. We don't really get into pH out. Um, and the reason why is that your pH through Dr. Ingham, we find out that the pH changes so much in just one tiny little place to one other. If we worry about soil life, the bacteria, the fungi, the nematodes, the protozoa, making sure those guys are in the right amounts, then nature takes care of itself. And here's the best part. You don't even have to maintain it. All you need to do, once you get your stuff right, all you have to do is make sure you don't put any chemicals on there that are gonna kill it. And that's stuff you're making yourself, Billy? Yeah. Um, if you guys have compost, I mean, this is the hard. This is the part that's a little harder to convey. And I was hoping to come down to maybe, um, because you guys are close, I was hoping to maybe take my uh, rig down there, my uh, compost, my 30 gallon compost extract maker, maybe take a trip down to you guys' place and um, bring some of my ball and compost <laughs> and make some extract and we could do a test plot at your place and see if I'm lying. I've really <laughs> thought about doing this and I'm like, okay, if I could show that in just two treatments, that's typically what it takes. Sometimes, I mean, if we got ground, we had ground around here that was as hard as woodpecker lips. So we had to go through with a broad fork and at least make holes in the soil just to get the stuff down in there. But once you did that, it's like, okay, just stand back and let it happen. We're seeing all these things, all these invasive grasses, they disappeared. And um, it's just trying to convey because, I mean, all of us work in the social media space. This stuff is so astonishing and the recovery is so great that I don't think anybody's gonna believe me. But I'm looking at it under the microscope and I'm seeing it with my own two eyes. Everybody else around us is absolutely brown. We're the only place that's green. And that's the only thing we've done. Um, it's astonishing stuff. And I'm, I, to a certain extent, I'm kind of reluctant to talk about it because it almost sounds as if I've got to be lying about it. But Dr. Ingham's course works and we've done it. And yeah, I would love to be able to go down to you guys' place, maybe bring my extractor. And um, if you're okay with it, maybe we do a test plot and find out whether or not I'm full of hot air. <laughs> hey, I, no, that'd be interesting, you, I think. You told me that a while ago and I was like, Let's make it happen. I got just a spot, too. <laughs> yeah, we'll have an extract barbecue or something. <laughs> well, apparently we won't be eating nothing out of Ben's beef at that barbecue. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you what, I'll bring the meat next time, guys, because y'all need to help me clear out these there freezers. Go. I yeah. got a whole, man, I got a whole ecosystem in all those freezers down there, <laughs> and there's only two of us eating it. So um, crazy. have a party, Billy. <laughs> well, I was thinking about it, but you guys are so busy, man. It's easier to it's easier to come try to here. get Bin Laden to a party than get you guys all rounded up. <laughs> you got to come down here, though. <laughs> I'll bring the meat. Yeah. <laughs> so, so for my week this week, before we get into the topic, I'm doing more fencing. Surprise! surprise no way. Surprise. Yes, believe it or not. Uh, but you know, I had Ben's tractor for the whole week last week, and um, I you know cleared some brush. Use that to. I had a, have, now I have a big giant pile of trees that I need to get rid of. So I've just been doing a lot of that today. I put up posts, uh, poles on the spots that I need it, uh, basically the corners. And then, um, have you ever guys put in a, a winch on a car? I have. Yeah. There's like no directions for that. For your mini truck? No. 
for my mini truck. Yeah, it's like you got. I mean, there's basic directions and they're gen generic. Yeah, so I'm trying to. F I was trying to figure out that out today because I have a winch. I've had it for a little while, and I need to put it. In, so I'm gonna put it in the front of my bumper. So I had I installed a new bumper on my mini truck, but trying to figure out the winch, I was like, I was getting kind of frustrated because I was like, man, how come it can't be just so simple? Just plug it in, um, <laughs> and it's not. So I'm still trying to figure that out. What is it for a winch? What brand? It's a uh, Warren. Warren. And that didn't come with like a wiring harness and good directions? I was surprised. I mean, generic directions, but like, I guess what I'm having a problem with is how you tie it into the ignition. Yeah, it that, says you got to tie it into the ignition difficult. and then tie it to your battery. You'll want to find a fuse. I think what they're saying is they want you want to find a fuse source that when you turn your ignition off, the battery, sh that fuse shuts off so that way when you your keys off you're not always having power going to your right. winch so it's not draining your battery so if you go to your fuse panel you should be able to find one in there that doesn't have power when the keys off but does when the keys on oh, why couldn't why couldn't you hardwire it right to the battery and then just put a switch on the positive side that way whenever you needed to use the winch i mean you could hardwire that's typically how you do it is just hardwire yeah, you could switch. do it just hardwire directly to the battery. If you have that switch on, it's never going to drain as long as you don't have it on. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, directions didn't tell me to do it that way. It did, but I was looking online and stuff. But is there like a sol solenoid that you could buy and attach everything to that and then attach to the battery and then that would do? It would be constantly on. That's what I saw online that people were doing. But but see what I mean? It's not like it's not like cookie cutter uh, thing. I was kind of frustrated with it. I got Can I ask a question real quick? Because um, yeah. Going back to the inflation thing, I want to ask Ben something because are you, I wonder how much sticker shock you're having because I'm out here trying to put in, I got to put in this solar array for a little something I got here. And to buy one stick of four inch rigid pipe, you guys are going to, you're gonna, not going to believe this. One stick of four inch rigid pipe, no matter where I go, is nearly 400 bucks. And that's what this thing calls for. So I'm wondering, Ben, with your construction project, are you sticker shock driving you crazy right now? Actually, I have psyched myself up for four years now. Um, the price of lumber has come down. <laughs> that's kind of why we started doing this now. Um, so what was it, two years ago, um, I put sheeting in the barn on the floor. It was a uh, subfloor. When we built this mobile home, it would have been like 2019 into 2020 before everything climbed up our the same subfloor the Advantech was 40 bucks a sheet uh, when I did the barn in 22 that same sheeting was like $84 a sheet uh, that's prohibitively expensive uh, especially you know when you need so much of it well now that stuff's back down to 40 bucks a sheet a lot of the lumbers back down uh but man for real like the uh the sticker shock is a thing the stuff that i think the thing that gets me is like when i go buy hardware everything i get is like three or four hundred dollars and i walk out in it with like in one bag that's that's when i have sticker shock like going to the grocery store <laughs> yep i think metal's gone crazy the most it seems like wood i think wood like you said wood's come down but metal products seem to be have go going through the roof yep and pvc like i know i'm getting like pvc conduit and stuff it's like you want what it's like a 100 bucks for a four inch piece 
So I metal was like, yeah, that's even worse. I couldn't imagine spending four hundred bucks for a ten foot stick. Yeah, well, worst comes to worst, I guess I could find one of these leftover, one of these manufacturing plants that went out of business and go cut out a ten foot section. No, it, <laughs> it's not going to come to that, but. I can see people doing that, but if things keep the way they are, I, I won't engage in that. You know, I could come up with option B. I could probably use a four-inch piece of black locust or something and probably whittle that thing into what I need, but um, yeah, probably do the same thing. Makes me want to take like, my solar rig. I got, I got a bunch of four-inch conduit in that that I don't know what we paid for, but it was nowhere near that, and that was like right after covid i think for cf metal has just gone crazy lately have you tried any of the uh like metal supply yards like oh let's see there's one in hendersonville i think is where it's at jackson steel they they usually have decent prices on metal no i haven't looked at any of those i was um i was thinking about hitting a scrap yard i'll have to try that but every that's where i'm probably messing up is i'm like okay surely it's some scrap yard someplace there's got to be a piece of four inch rigid pipe somewhere it can be plumbing it can be whatever but i'm like push come to show I, I would love the metal because i know that it's never going to rot away but neither will black locust not in my lifetime so you know worst case scenario i guess i can go that route it's just going to look ugly and um but then again we're people that are more concerned about function over form anyway so yeah as long as it's functional have you called around because i know when we did rebar for our concrete slabs this summer. The first price I got was 20, 21 bucks for a stick of rebar. Then it was like 20 bucks. And then the other place is seven bucks. I'm like, how can you be that different? And the no, seven I, place they delivered to the house for free. The other guys, they wanted, they wanted to charge me for delivery too. In all honesty, Al, I mean, after I took the mothballs off of some words I don't use every day after <laughs> hearing that sticker price the first time, I was like, um, dude, I don't know if I want to call anybody else because I'm like, okay, I, maybe I'll just go to a scrapyard and go figure this out. But um, yeah, it's I, I just can't even believe what these prices are. I mean, I, like I said, I've been a journeyman electrician for 25 years and 400 bucks for a piece of four inch pipe. I mean, I don't even know how people would do. I mean, unless it's like, you know, a very, very deep pocket manufacturing plant. I don't know who just has 400 bucks laying around for a stick of pipe. So I'm just gonna see if I can find somewhere, go out with my bandsaw, my little, um, <laughs> you know, my little bandsaw and see if I can go to a scrap yard and at least find something that'll fit the bill. There's some pretty good scrap yards up in Asheville. I know that. I'd try that. Cause 400 bucks for one stick is ridiculous. I just checked Lowe's website. They want 565 bucks for one stick. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That is, yeah, why well, was right. Well, you know, if that if that translates over, last time metal prices were super high, I remember working a job as an electrician. I had, I had like number 18 wire, this is basically speaker wire, on pallets behind a chain link fence, and all the homeless guys jumped over that fence somehow <laughs> and took that wire because it was like four bucks a pound for copper. So... I mean, we got, but then again, we had guys around there that would go through your barbecue grill for bones. So, I mean, there was no way they, there was no way you're going to stop a crackhead after a bunch of, after a spool of 500, you know, you know, for that price. I mean, they'll do anything for it. I remember our house in California, before we moved into it, it was the last house that we had. They Somebody stole all the copper pipe from, I mean, they had to crawl 
we had a crawl space. I mean, you couldn't stand up in this space, but they had to go in the crawl space and they cut all of it out. We go to turn on our water. You know, you first arrived to your new home. We turned on the faucet and it was just gushing from inside the house. I was like, are you kidding me? And somebody went in there and took it all out before we moved in. Yeah, it was wild. I was like, are you kidding me? So let's get into uh, this topic, Billy. Uh, I mean, this is how you feed your animals, right? Most of your animals, like, you, you, do you buy feed at all? Well, we don't have to. Um, we do, we have from time to time, but um, if we can just go into every animal individual. You know, when it comes to cows and stuff like that, you know, we use Greg Judy's model. We use um, Joel Salatin's model, but I'll tell you the one that really has saved us all the money in the world was finding out the work of Jim Garris, who wrote Kick the Hay Habit. And what you're basically doing is stockpiling forage basically through the winter. So you you set things up, and it's so incredibly simple. You can get trained through this through um, Stockman Grass Farmer or even read his book. And then when you see how it's done, you're realizing you can do this well. If it works for cows, it can work with any ruminant, and it does because that's what we do with our sheep also. But in addition to that, with our sheep, we also do things like tree hay, which my wife is kind of an expert on, is um, we, you know, we put back hay and we make bales of comfrey because we're probably the biggest comfrey dealer, if not number one, <laughs> number two in America. So we make bales of it and then we use that to feed them through the winter as well. So that's easy enough, but where it gets a little trickier for most people is when it comes to your ruminants. So, um, not, I'm sorry, not your ruminants, but your omnivores. And it was, I gotta give credit to where it's due. Um, it was, the method we used was pretty much inspired by Sean and Beth Doherty uh, through their book, The Independent Farmstead. And I basically, now through their book, everything surrounds itself around the family cow. You no, know, you drink all the milk you need, you eat the cheese, you do whatever, but then you got a lot left over. Well, who would want to eat that on the farm? Chickens and pigs. So that's what they would do. They would take their excess, give it to the chickens and pigs. And then of course they would grow other things that not only they could eat, but this is really the genius of their book is that in that book, you find out that you can grow things like trombuccinos. Ben gave me some things like kasuzi squash, things these, these things that keep forever and a day at room temperature in perhaps even your barn. So. You got all those things put back, but I'm thinking, okay, well, how do I, is there an, an intermediate step between growing all this stuff, producing all your stuff, and plus, I don't want, and my wife will never again, she grew up on a milking farm, so, you know, milking cows and stuff like that, so she never wants anything to do with it again. So I'm like, well, how do I accomplish what Sean and Beth described in that book without having a family cow? So that brought me to... Everywhere we've lived, whether it was small town, decab, Texas, it doesn't matter. It works everywhere. The claim to fame in decab, Texas, believe me, is that it's the home of Hoss Cartwright. So there's nothing there. But we were able to make this same model work in a place like that. And I knew that if we could make it work there, then it can work everywhere. So what did we do? Well, if you go to any, every town has probably an elementary school. Well, I go out there and I challenge everybody in your listening audience, go out there to an every, any elementary school. Take a peek in that dumpster on Monday or the first day after the trash man shows up. What do you see in that dumpster? Cartons of milk. Go there the next day. By the time it's all said and done, before, if they come out once a week, 
you will see practically that entire dumpster filled with milk. So the easiest thing to do is either go in there and requisition it yourself, or if anybody gives you any problems, go to the school board and say, um, let me get this right. We're all taxpayers in this room. Our, our taxes or theft, that's another thing altogether, but mm -hmm. our taxes go to pay for these schools. So I got a way to repurpose this milk instead of you throwing it into a landfill. And trust me, they're going to say, my bad, go ahead and take all that milk, bruh. And that's exactly what happens. So that's one way to go about getting that milk. And then there's other things where we had, now this doesn't work everywhere. I can give, I don't, I only talk about this in in-person performance, uh, you know, presentations, but there's a handful of places where grocery stores, like in North Carolina, you can get yourself into like this pig registry where you can get all of the food out of every grocery store, but there's a double-edged sword. You can take all that food and feed it to your chickens and pigs, but then the state gets to come on your property at any time, day or night, and inspect your property and inspect how you're running your pigs and chickens. Well, that's not appealing to me, not, not where I live, not, not in any form. So what's the alternative to that? Is now I go through and I got a people, I got basically a waiting list. For example, the University of North Carolina that's in Asheville, they were offering, you ain't even gonna believe this. This is how ubiquitous and available this stuff is. They offered, they put out a clarion call saying, hey, can somebody do something with all this organic produce that we have from our cafeterias? So I reach out to them. The lady calls me back and she's like, okay, uh, you got a way you can, I say, yeah, I got animals. I got this system called the chicken tractor on steroids. And I described what it was. I said, you're welcome to come out, take a look. Soon as she heard what I was saying, she's like, okay, well, is it, you know, can you handle 700, 600 pounds a week? And I'm like, no, no, 600 pounds a day? And I'm like, Whoa. Uh, no. She says, well, what if, this is what floored me. She says, what if we pay you a thousand bucks a month to come get this stuff? And I'm like, wow. so I'm stuttering on the phone because I'm like, okay, I thought I was gonna have to pay them. And I'm realizing, okay, this, this is an operation. So I'm thinking, okay, can I go ahead and collect this stuff? And then all the farmers I know, maybe I'll give them this at a discount or whatever. These, who cares? They're paying me anyway. Come here and get this stuff. And that's just one college, 600 pounds a day. So I had to basically step away from that and then go to other sources. And that's what I'm going to reveal. Jason, you know my trick here. Chipotle, man. You know how many pigs and chickens I've fattened up from Chipotle alone? Chips and salsa. Bam. And check this out. One Chipotle, I've done the math on it. One Chipotle can, in one day per week, is enough to feed six full-grown pigs and about 30 chickens with so much left over that I got to compost it. That's how much one Chipotle visit a week. And then, of course, you're always telling them how they benefit. So the idea is, like, like with the Asian grocery stores that I work with, the Asian grocery store only has to have the guy come out once a week because I'm taking all the produce. And the Chipotle, you know, it's not changing anything on their end, but they're able to advertise to the customers what they're doing. And, you know, it's a net benefit for them. So what that means to me is I'm feeding all of my chick. Uh, so let me, let me talk about when I say nearly for free, when I talk about pork, 
when we did our video on it, I said, and I lied, sadly, you know, it's in violation of my Christian ethic, but I did because I didn't think nobody would believe me. We, I told everybody in that video years back that we were raising them for 31 cents a pound. Truth is, we were raising them for 21 cents a pound, and it would be absolutely free if we ferret our own pigs. So we were doing it at 21 cents a pound. Now, that's with me doing the butchering, of course. Um, 21 cents a pound, and that's basically the initial cost of the pig and what uh, feed, because we're basically putting them on um, organic food scraps, better than organic food scraps for the most part, within a month of after, within a month of, well, after, like, right after they're weaned. So it's not long at all that we get them on that. So they're, on six pigs, I think it required one 40-pound bag, and then the rest of it, they were eating food that most people would be envious to eat. So I work with bakeries, I work with Chipotle, I work with all these different places. And just was there, in bakeries, a, was, was there anything, was there any food that you would not take, for, say, like say for the pigs, or would you just take whatever? No, 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 that's, I'm, that's a very good question because I'm from an ethical standpoint, I don't feed pork to pigs and I don't feed chickens to chicken. But the cool thing is a lot of these people will work with you and separate it so if you tell them, hey, all I want is the beans and rice, man, they'll, I'll tell them beans, rice. If, I'm, if I know I got a lot of pigs to raise, I'll do beans, rice, and chicken, and they'll separate it for me. So all I got to do is show up, and at the colleges, they're even better, man. It's like, you know, did we do this right? And I'm like, man, this is, this is fantastic. <laughs> and these things exist, and I'll tell you another thing that's fantastic. One of the places I work with is West End Bakery in Asheville. And I love to give them a shout out every time I can because there are businesses out there that don't care what the, there are such a thing as unjust laws. And we got mom and pop businesses out there that just, you know what, I give you a pork loin and I basically get all their scraps for the entire year. So once a week from that bakery alone, I get organic bread, honestly, organic bread and it fills a 55 gallon drum and that's just one every Wednesday or Thursday I go out there. In exchange for that, if they got any electrical issues, I go in there and I knock it out. So it's like a, it's the perfect symbiosis. They don't want to go out there and um, I, I won't go into great detail, but I've done a lot of favors for these guys and food truck owners. And it's not like, hey, what can you pay me? It's like, it's a mutual exchange of value. You know, it's like more bartering. important. Yeah, it's Almost. from a bartering standpoint, if I get shut down at one place, I got 15 others I can go. And honestly, to because we're in maintenance mode right now, all I need is one day a week to go to Asheville and stop it. Only one I'm working with right now is the bakery because that's all I need. That's enough to feed all the chickens I have and the sheep are eating grass. So, and then as far as the chickens, if you want, I'll, I'll shut up for a minute and let you guys talk, but... Um, the um, when it comes to chickens, man, we got another method that even I think Ben employs a um, a variation of called the chicken tractor on steroids. But I'll I'll let you guys go ahead and fire it around for a minute. So I want to know how are you storing all this food at your place after you get it? Like are you yep. having it in a fridge or are you just letting it marinate? No, no. Here's <laughs> the best part about it. Okay, so it's like um if you have a composting toilet now this is going to sound like a disgusting comparison but it kind of works the same way i guess ben had all he can stand with a composting toilet discussion because i don't see him up here anymore <laughs> <laughs> where'd ben go <laughs> um 
So the way it works is in a composting toilet, you separate the liquids from the solids. And there's a reason for that. Um, the same thing in that it's going to get really, really ripe if you don't separate the liquids from the solids. Well, here we go. Ben's back with us again. I started talking about <laughs> composting toilets and he just bugs out. So, uh, <laughs> in a nutshell, when it comes to bread, that's exactly why bread, and this is one of those lessons I learned throughout the winter, the beans and rice, I can literally go in a solid week. And as long as it's in five gallon buckets with not a whole lot of head space in there, I can get almost two weeks before it starts to go rotten. I'm dead serious. I've done all the work on it. Now, when you start putting vegetables and stuff in there, then all of a sudden, you better step aside because it, you may have a five-gallon, you know, explosion. But if it's just beans and rice, you're fine for about a week and a half, even in the dead of summer. But but when it comes to bread, it's so much easier to manage because number one, there's no separation. I'm talking bread that is so good there is not a one of us here right now that wouldn't eat it. But this is stuff that just because it looks a little bit ugly, they can't sell it. And they can't give it away to the, they don't even give this stuff away to the homeless shelters. Trust me, the homeless shelters in Asheville, they're eating five-star meals every night just from the leftovers that are coming out of places like this. So the bread, if you have just one source, if I could only pick one, it would always be bread, especially if it's the organic bread where every single thing in that bread is organic um, because it's, it's super cheap, easy to manage, and if I had to hang on to it for two weeks, not a problem. But I usually work it out, Jason. And there's no way I could really teach this without working it. But basically, I only let that food last a week. Anything that's over a week gets thrown into the compost pile. Sounds like we're in the wrong area. We don't have <laughs> options like that around where we are. <laughs> but you might, Al. That's, that's why when we started all this, we were in Decab, Texas. As far well, actually, I started it all the way back when we lived in small town Kansas, and we've proven that even in the smallest places like Hiawatha, Kansas, or uh, Decab, Texas, these things work as long as you can work with some of the municipalities. If you can well, work want, with schools, I want I want the bougie food for my animals. I don't want the. <laughs> I've had those other options come up before, and I don't want to feed my my pigs cake all the time. So we usually we pass on those ones. <laughs> Well, that's really one of the cool things about it is that you can take, um, it, you know, you don't have to go all that way. Let's say you are, let's say you spent money and you got a load of organic grain. And let's say you're only going to use 50% of that because you can only get 50% of their diet in food that you think is suitable. So it doesn't have to be a 100% commitment. You can also do it and scale it to where you, you know, where you feel comfortable with it. But there's also a danger because somebody's going to ask, well, are the animals getting all their nutrients? Well, for pigs, I've never, I, I've, <laughs> sat, I've sat on the same um, stage with Joel Salatin talking about this. And I, I don't know if he, basically I've never had a problem. And just by using nothing more than charcoal that we create and the food I've given them, and I'll put that pork up against anything I've ever bought or processed in the butcher shop. That pork is really that good. So it comes down to the supply. It comes down to what they're actually eating. You're right, Al, it does It does help, but you don't have to go 100% that way. But, right. there's, but you, gotta, you wanna have the good quality of feed to get to give them. Well, that's where things like the chicken tractor on steroids is 
really the cat's meow when it comes to all this. Because you got, well, it all started, and I've actually been to this place at Carl Hammer's place at Vermont Composting. World famous for what he does. He has compost that is probably the envy of the United States. And he uses chickens in that process. Well, Jeff Lawton, the pimp daddy of permaculture himself out of Australia, came there, took a visit, and said, okay, let me scale this down, and he did. Well, he came up with that idea. We took the idea and scaled it even more and did more testing on that than probably anybody else on the planet. And so what we've realized, we're like, okay, we can tweak it this way, we can do it all that way. But going back to your point, Al, in that if you were to just give birds nothing but that bread, you're going to have some touch. It's going to be so-so with that bird because you're you're essentially providing all carbohydrates and you're not giving them any protein. But what in that chicken tractor on steroid system, which we have playlist after playlist after playlist on our YouTube channel, the chickens derive all of their protein out of the compost of the pile. So we provide the carbohydrates, whether it's veggies, whether it's beans, whether it's rice, whether it's whatever, but they source all of their own protein through that pile. And if I'm not mistaken, I think, Ben, you do like a variation of something like that. Yeah, yeah, I uh, I saw you doing the chick tractor on steroids. I thought that was the most ingenious thing I have ever seen. So I kind of did my variation of it. Uh, I used the uh, the coop chickens, so they're stationary. I just built a big old compost pile right in the middle of their run. That's what I feed them on until they get trained up and they can, you know, they they return to that place to start working. And so what I found is I, it takes about, oh, I don't know, maybe a, a month of preload. Um, every week you're building a pile, you're turning a pile, and then you just let that just kind of roll on until after about a month, you've basically done the hot compost system with four piles. Uh, and by the end of the month, you wind up with your first probably cubic yard of compost, finished compost, a uh, little bit of elbow grease. Like, I think that's, that's the input. It's like you save up all your carbon. If you got wood chips, you can use those. You got leaves, anything you've got, you can use. Uh, you can stick a tarp underneath the roost and harvest the manure. I mean, there's just, there's so many ways once you get into it and you start understanding what you're doing, but yeah, like getting into that and starting to do the, uh, the, the swing of, you know, build a pile, flip a pile, build a pile, flip a pile. Uh, it was incredible last summer, last year, last year I produced 20 yards of compost over the course of the year so like it absolutely does work have you done that um uh, food for like say meat chickens billy yeah um that was really you know that was really the tail of the tape is that we tried every kind of chicken conceivable except for cornish cross because i i know i know in this system it will not work these birds are way too lethargic to be able to I need them to get on top of the pile and go to work and source their own protein. Those trifling birds, I'm not sure they'd ever do that. I mean, I, I mean a bressy, something like that. So that's, I'm glad you brought that up, Jason, because we were doing dual purpose birds first time. We, when I was trying to figure out how to do this without the benefit of cow manure, which I didn't have at the time, I had to invent this whole thing. I was doing three whole chicken tractors on steroids by myself trying to figure this out. And I had 
Australorps in one, Rhode Island Reds in another, and then some other breed that I don't remember in the third. And I'm like, okay, which breed works best? How do I make this work? And then once I found a winning secret, I was like, okay, got this down. Now I need to figure out how many birds it takes no matter the system. So if it's strictly birds that are made for laying, you need about 30, you need about 31 birds. If you have dual purpose birds, you can get away with about 27 to 21 birds. And if you have meat birds in there, you can get away with as little as 17 and still get the job done. Now, here's, here's the, in this system, the ideal chicken becomes a very different creature. We want big bodied birds that aren't afraid to forage and can move a whole lot of material at once. Well, that's not gonna be your garden variety layer, the, the typical layer. So the best, as far as a layer in this system, as far as a bird in this system, believe it or not, meat birds work the best. Because these guys are big, they're, I mean, it's the best value for value turn. I mean, like, for example, Ben made 21 21 cubic yards of compost. You know what that compost goes for right now in Asheville? A thousand dollars, I'm sorry, a hundred dollars a yard. That's a lot of money that you just saved. And nobody ever talks about that. Nobody talks about the compost component. Yeah, in a nutshell, I mean, meat birds work the best in this system. Meat birds, without a doubt. When you say meat birds, what breed? Because you you don't like the Cornish crosses. So what are you using for a meat bird breed? Yeah, we've done everything from Bielfelders to uh, Reds. Um, the Oh, shoot, I can't think of the Red name, Rangers. but it came from one of the hatcheries. Red Rangers, yeah, we've used those, and those were fantastic in this system. The bigger the bird, I'll be honest with you, the bigger the bird, the better this system works, provided they are birds that are not averse to foraging. That is absolutely critical in this system. But I'll be honest with you, Jason, there's not been a bird that we tried in this system that did not flourish as long as we had it in the right numbers. So anywhere around 31 for just strictly layers, 27 to 21 birds is ideal when it comes to dual purpose. And then 17 is about the golden number when it comes to layers. You can go more than those numbers, but those are the minimal numbers that we figured out you need to make this system work. Now, here's another downside, if people consider it a downside, is that you're working twice as much to make, unless you're doing a system like Ben's, where it's it's a very good system. If you're doing the system like I'm doing, where it's going through a food force, let's say, it's going to it's labor intensive but i guess ben would have to speak to how much labor was required in his but i I think his was a bit more efficient than the one i was doing Uh, it was pretty labor intensive uh bringing everything to the coop uh collecting materials and stuff like that it was it was very labor intensive and then the way my particular setup was like i'm having to haul a wagon through the door and then when it's you know ready to you know, leave, I'm hauling it out to another pile. It was just like, there's a lot of room for improvement. Um, I'll probably fire that system up here again pretty quick because I'm just about out of compost. But yeah, it it's very labor intensive. I, I, I tell people that. People will be like, oh man, you made all that compost. That looks awesome. And chickens are doing most of the work. It's like, yeah, but you're still going to be doing some shoveling. Like, it's not, not a a free system you still have to get in there and 
get dirty. But it's an exceptional system for people that, A, got more time than money, um, which seems to be the case these days. I mean, um, folks are dying at these grocery stores, man. It just breaks my heart when I see, you know, it, it really breaks my heart when I go through this grocery store and I'm looking at people that I know are on a fixed income. And the guy at the deli is telling me, he's just shaking his head. I know this guy. And he's like, man, it's breaking my heart. When I'm seeing these old timers, they used to come by. They were buying, he said one guy would buy an eighth of a pound of ham and somehow stretch it through the week. And so I'm looking at ladies in that store that are pushing around a grocery cart. They got to feed these kids. And I'm like, okay, the only solution I can come up with is, yes, I got a bunch of freezers out there full of meat. And we've given away a lot. I mean, we've given away four pigs last year, and it didn't really cost us, like I said, 21 cents a pound. We had to give away meat because we're producing, a lot of us are producing this kind of abundance. Well, it's easy to be generous when you're at a point of abundance. And that's why I try as often as I can to champion some of these systems where even if you had minimal needs or minimum you had a minimum in terms of money, but you had a you had an abundance of labor. You could easily take a system like this, scale it with other families if you're able to bring them all together, or even your own family if you have a, a larger family, and be able to put all this together just in the chicken tractor on steroids. Think about this: you're extracting on a daily basis. Let's say you got let's say they're let's say it's dual purpose birds. Let's say you're getting 21 eggs a day out of that system. Okay, that's cool. And then every month or every two months, you're extracting a couple of birds out of there. Okay, that's cool. And now because we're producing a cubic yard at least, you could be up to you could be producing up to three cubic yards of compost a week. Well, you think about it, all of your basic needs on the farm, except for your fat requirements, are really covered. You're producing your eggs, you're producing your meat, you're using that compost to produce your vegetables. And the only thing that's critical that you don't have, let's say in a preparedness point of view or whatever is your fat but you could be taking the byproducts of that system and also be raising your pigs and producing enough lard that'll make your head spin so you can use the chicken tractor on steroids and use the byproducts of it because when we process our chickens even out of that system we um what i sometimes do now is strip off all the meat off the chickens and leave everything else there freeze that chicken cavity and then make a pig sickle to throw out to the pigs, you know, when they're mature enough. So, I mean, there's so many different ways you can go about this thing. But these are really, I'm so glad you guys got me on here to be able to talk this, talk about this magnificent design science called permaculture that could really solve all the ails of the things we have going on around here. It's just going to take a little bit up here. It's going to take a little bit of elbow grease. And honestly, it's going to take a little bit of know-how that isn't that hard to acquire. I say then you're able to you're able to graze your ruminants behind them because they're gonna be growing better grass for you. So you sounds like you do sheep more than cattle kind or cow. That's what you do is the sheep. Yeah, because we're well, Jason and Ben know the kind of terrain I'm in, and we we did cows out here. The owners before us ran. Yeah, we're talking like up the side yeah, of a mountain. Side of a mountain, yeah. Sounds yeah, like it, it's. Yeah. Now we had a Dexter out here. We had a Dexter bull that we were kind of experimenting and thinking, okay, well, we'll use him as an experiment to see. And he was able to manage this terrain. The problem is it's, it is a nightmare to string temporary fence in mm -hmm. this kind of environment. So 
The ones that work better for us are sheep. Plus, these Katahdin sheep are my favorite meat anyhow. Um, they produce way more in terms of meat as opposed to a breeding pair of cows. Um, I get way more meat for the amount of effort, and they're just way easier to manage, um, especially easier to manage in this terrain. So sheep definitely just makes sense for us. Don't don't get me wrong, bro. I can put the herd on a cow, and we got plenty of beef in that freezer, but it's better for us to trade for the beef, especially when I got a commodity like sheep that are worth more than beef. So, you know, it, you, you can make a pretty good trade off. So now you're able to stockpile all of your grass throughout the winter for your sheep? Uh, yes and no. Um, yes, but, well, I'll say yes when I get it right. <laughs> because <laughs> um, I brought on more heads and now I got, I got girls that are pregnant. So my stockpile ran out faster than I thought. And then I'm bringing in the production area that has never been done before. So I'm out here literally lugging 40 pound bales of hay over my shoulder up the side of this mountain. But I'm doing it with the expectation of knowing that this time next year, I'm gonna have proper grass up there. So yes, I had enough for what for the stock that I had, but then I came across a good deal and then wound <laughs> up um, taking on more heads and then I ate through my stock. So I'm like, okay, well, I'm sure you guys have been through the same thing too. Especially when you're growing and expanding your homestead or your farm. That happens constantly. Yeah, but that's one cool thing about ruminants. That is that is one beautiful thing. Not ruminants, but um, your omnivores. I know that there's going to be a number of people out there that are averse to pork, and that's okay. I, I understand your objections. Um, trust me, I'm going to eat my swine. But um, <laughs> as far as... As far as things, and I and I know the guys on here too. Believe me, I seen I seen Jason and Ben both put the herd on some pig. Now, um, the beauty about it is is that under that model of being able to recycle and work with certain businesses, whether it be your school or whatever the case may be, is that your 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 stocking rate is not as critical. And the reason why I'm saying that is that. I got a, I got more supply than I can fill. There is there are people falling over themselves, wanting absolutely. In fact, I had a guy hit me up, offer me his composting bit or a piece of his composting business, because he's got all these food scraps that are coming in, but he has no way to process it. And so, it's funny as we do this work, we're realizing that opportunities are just kind of falling into our laps but we just don't have the bandwidth to look after it. But the cool thing is that with omnivores is you're less reliant on making sure you calculated your stocking density perfectly, because if you don't and you overshoot it like I did this year, then you're gonna be feeding hay and that's gonna cost you money. But, you know, all, there's no getting around that. You're gonna overshoot it sometimes, sometimes you'll get it right. I actually kind of want to take it back to the uh, chicken tractor on steroids for a minute. Have you thought about it? Uh, have you? Is there any ideas you have about adapting that same style system for using pigs? Because I keep I keep coming back to that, and I would really really like to figure out a way to get them to turn compost. I, I'm thinking I'm going to have to find a different breed because the American guinea hogs they won't turn a pile for me. I, 
I honestly thought about that when Jason was doing his thing. Um, when you had him inside that cardboard at your old place, I was thinking, I know you were using wood chips, yeah. but I am absolutely 100% con convinced. And as I go through this, Ben, you're probably going to have an aha moment too because I'm thinking, okay, I saw how Jason did it and you were using wood chips. Well, I know a place where you can get triple ground wood chips. The problem is, is that the wood chips you had were too big. They'll break down, but it's just going to take a while. Right. So if instead of those wood chips, you were able to use a mixture of straw because your carbon and nitrogen ratio is going to be pretty high. If you did the same exact thing, but you were put in, if, I think if you were to put in about 30% straw and you were to overfeed the pigs and the reason now, I know this is going to sound like sacrilege, but here's what I'm saying. If you were to overfeed those pigs and cover it up with that carbon, the reason why is that pigs, despite what people say, unless it's an American guinea hog, I don't know of any other pig that overeats. They'll, they'll stop eating when they're full. There's other breeds out there. A guinea hog will eat until it turns into a tick. Um, exactly. Yes. And now, granted, now, Ben, I, as a fellow butcher, I know you would know this. The meat is fantastic. You just don't get a whole lot of it. So, yep, that's the truth. So going to the pigs, if you were to take Jason's model, and I would absolutely positively love to do this, if you were to take Jason's model in the carport and do the very same thing over again, the only caveat is overfeed them, either overfeed them or throw grass clippings in there because you don't have enough nitrogen. And then what you would be doing is a de facto version of a deep bedding method for chickens. But the same exact thing would work with pigs. Or you could incorporate what Joel Salatin does, and you could put fermented corn at the bottom of it. You could have chickens work it over completely, put fermented corn at the bottom of it, and if you get the, a, a decent breed of pig, they will burrow five feet just to get a kernel of corn. Because that stuff is like a big-time calling card. I, I absolutely think it could work in a static system it could be very holistic. You're just going to have to add a whole lot more nitrogen if you're using bigger wood chips. But if his wood shavings are triple ground, I am absolutely convinced that if you're doing it in the summer and in the, in the time of month where it's really vegetative, there is no doubt. But I think it would have to be stationary. Do you have a way in which you would adapt that? Because, Ben, it seems like you're able to kind of efficiently like remove some of the um some of my conjurings out of the way to make it a little bit more efficient how would you go about it so i've i think honestly i would just do it stationary kind of the carport method but uh i have thought about this i know you you've got one of those uh sheep rampin tractor things i i don't know i go back and forth i've thought about figuring out a way i could tractor the pigs around just like the chicken tractor on steroids have them move to a spot, do the compost thing. I'm not sure if it would work quite like the chickens, but yeah, I don't know. I, this is just all, you know, me speculating. I think the stationary method is what I'm leaning towards, uh, just because then I can, I can bring everything to them just on a way larger scale. Uh, you know, the chickens, it's kind of cool, but it's a it's a homeowner size scale. What I'm needing is I'm needing you know, 
10, 20, 30 yards of compost a garden season while we're still setting up, you know, we're building beds, we're, you know, top dressing everything. It takes a lot of input right now. It's going to become less the longer we're here, but yeah, I don't know. It's just the making a whole bunch of it real quick. I'll tell you, I'll tell you a, um, one of the lessons I learned from Elaine Ingham is that you have compost tea and you have a compost extract. It is astonishing what I'm able to do. Okay, let's say you have a cubic yard of compost, right? And this is going to be a blessing, I think, to so many people out there. You can take that same cubic yard of compost and let's say you put it all over. Let's say you have a bunch of raised beds and you can put it over all them. Or you can go ahead and I've shown people how to do this on my Patreon channel and how it makes all the difference in the world. Instead, I can get the very same thing with one five-gallon bucket. Instead of using up that whole cubic yard, I can take one five-gallon bucket, put it in a 400-micron strainer, just two big handfuls at a time, stick it in that 400-micron uh, strainer paint bag, squeeze it through the compost, do that, dunk it, squeeze it. There's a way you ought to do it. Do that three times. Good night. You're getting... Ex all you're doing is extracting, ripping off all those beneficial microbes from your compost and you're putting it in an aqueous form. Now, in that aqueous form, I can take it over whatever I currently have and you're getting the best of both worlds. I can take that two handfuls of compost that I used in that five gallon bucket, put it back into my compost pile and have a self-licking ice cream cone that will be re-inoculated re with all of those excellent microbes in about two weeks. So there's ways in which we can, and this is something, this is why I really want to try to make time to get down to you guys' place and take some of what you already have, or, you know, to maybe take some of the stuff that I already have that's prepared. And we can look at it under a microscope. I can show you what I'm looking at and show you the, where you're deficient and how we can fix it. But instead of taking and making 30 yards of compost, we can actually do 30 yards of compost, and this is going to sound this is going to sound crazy, but Dr. Ingham proved it, and we're proving it through her, through our place, is that instead of taking that 30 yards, I can do the very same thing with one yard, just by making compost extract. So that's that's really the benefit. Now compost tea is different, in that when things are vegetative, compost tea is more difficult to make. And I don't, it's hard to express that because it doesn't permeate the soil. The idea of a compost extract is to be on the green growing parts and it's to fill all of those pores on the outside of a plant with all of your best beneficial bacteria microbes so that the bad stuff has no place to take root. You're not killing anything. All you're doing is out competing the bad guys. Mm. And um, so there's making an extract is a little bit different than making a tea you can get all the benefits if you just learn if i show you how to make these teas you're going to realize oh shoot i don't need anywhere near as much as long as you're not putting chemicals miracle grow or anything like that if you're partnering with your microbes you're not going to need to do anything else and that's what we're finding out here tree growth i got trees out here i mean that's another thing y'all I'm, I'm reluctant to say it but i swear it's true and I'm, i'll prove it in the videos I got two-year-old trees. I got three-year-old trees that are performing like they've been there for a decade just by using extract. 
and I'm afraid to do videos on it because I think people are going to think I'm lying about it. But I can go back to the video where I planted this tree on video and it's the same doggone tree and it's so robust right now using these very methods. And I'm wanting, I'm, the difficulty is trying to evangelize this to a wider audience without people think, I mean, look, there's a lot of frauds out there and I'm not trying to be counted among them. So I'm hoping to do, look, go down to you guys' place and tell me if I'm crazy. Let's let's take a test pot at your place. Let's do what I'm talking about. And I'll eat my hat if I'm wrong. Hey, let's do it. Like, you got my ear. Maybe, maybe I'm not grasping. Uh, like, I understand what you're saying. I, the way I thought I understood it is, you know, I've got places on this property, we don't even have an inch of topsoil. And where I've gone in and I've added all this compost and started actually building back the topsoil, it has vastly improved. So you're saying with the compost extract, you can just put that in those very poor areas and you don't need the compost. Yeah, well, I would I would say it's a little bit more than that. You're always going to want a carbon layer on top. Um, if it's bare soil, it's just going to go right back. Now, I'm glad you said that, Ben, because I do need to qualify this. If I have just bare dirt out there, and I don't cover it in any way, if I don't put a carbon layer out there, you're, it's it's only it's not going to work. What's critical is that you have to do this in conjunction with providing a carbon layer. Now, it's important that you don't overgraze. It's important that you don't. Um, you're going to have to keep your animals moving. It's it does require something of you. It's not just simply put this stuff down. But I'll put it this way, using Greg Judy's high-density grazing model, we've gotten to the same place, and it's taken, let's say, two years. We're doing this in a season now by doing this. So, yeah, we can absolutely do it at your place, whether it's your food forest, whether it's your some of these other places. We can look at it under a microscope, or basically you guys could send me a Ziploc, give me a soil sample, we can see what we're working with, and then I can roll down there with my 30-gallon um bubbler and then bring an extract of, or bring a I will show you how to make the extract so from here on out you can just do it yourself you can put it on a sprinkler I mean think about this one five gallon bucket of decent compost is enough to cover an entire acre adequately that sounds insane that's how when Dr. Ingham talked about this and she showed all of her case studies I'm like, okay, this sounds a little bit too good to be true until I started doing it. And I'm like, okay, one five-gallon bucket of extract can handle an entire acre and change everything That's around. Crazy. I'm like, okay, we've been doing this wrong. Um, it's not that we're doing it wrong. It's just a faster way of going about getting to the same place. You spraying the foliage, like the leaves and stuff on the trees? No. No, you can play it right. You can spray it right there on your um, – what we do is basically I'll make up 30 gallons and so I got a hundred gallon stock tank that I'll just fill up with well water, let it get to about ambient temperature. And then I'll take, because I'm gonna overdo it anyway, I could take one five gallon bucket and stick it in that hundred gallon stock tank and cover an entire acre, but that's not what I'm doing. I'm overdoing it. I'm taking 30 gallons, I'm sorry, 15 gallons and sticking it in that hundred gallon stock tank. And I'm covering maybe in one time a quarter acre. So, yeah, I'm getting fast, 
look, out the side of this window right here, up the side of this mountain, was nothing but briars, thorns, and thist thistles, and everything else. I hit it twice with compost extract, and it's almost miraculous what's happening. No thorns, no silvergrass, no nothing so far, and we're barely into the growing, we're not even into the growing season yet. I mean, technically, we're still winter, but I'm hoping that if people could maybe see it, because Jason and Ben are close, if I could replicate at your place what I'm doing here, that will send a calling card to everybody else that's getting into this space to say, you know what, man, this stuff works. We can get to the same place with much faster and do it without so much backbreaking work. I mean, I'm not a stranger to hard work. Man, I'm 53 years old. I ain't getting no younger. So I got to find these little tricks that make this stuff go easier. I mean, yeah, because we got we're on super compacted soil here. And I would that would be neat to see it if it works over here, full of thorny bushes love, and all. I, I would love to absolutely give it a shot over there. Um, but like I said, it's going to require the thing is you can't put it on bare soil without covering it up. It is going to require it is absolutely positively going to require a carbon layer so you're going to have to put something down whether it's straw whether it's hay something like that because the microbes are just going to die when they hit you know sunlight that's the only caveat and if the ground is really really compact because i can go over there and check your compaction at your places and anything over about a hundred or any no root can grow through anything that has a compaction of 300 psi you can't do it no root is able to go past 350 and 150 is about the limit for the most part so we can go over there and see our check a compaction test and see how far we go down before we hit 150 and then you got to do one of two things you can either go out there with a yeoman's plow dig it up and we can spray the microbes underground which by the way there are places where you can rent those for next to nothing around Asheville that's another thing altogether you can go out there with a yeoman's plow Ben at your place for example you can put a yeoman's plow on the back of your tractor run it down there and then we could spray underneath it the extract and get it below the hard pan but that is going to require a yeoman's plow and then you can really have it done in records time or the other part is go through and you can do what we had to do is basically go with a broad fork out there break it up every two feet believe me man you want that will make you strong going out there with a broad fork over acreage putting holes in the ground so you can do this but realizing I didn't have to do that at all in the first place. All I needed was a carbon layer and extract. And then we got into the same place. Yeah, make me a liar, fellas. Let me come on down there. We'll eat some of Meg's food and some of that barbecue from Jason's. And uh, <laughs> we'll call it even. Yeah, Let's Al, do you it. can fly down for that. <laughs> <laughs> so we kind of did a pig thing like that one summer in an area where it was just very bare. We just kept adding in straw, hay, you know, veg vegetables from different people. And it worked really well in the area that the pigs were, we just left it after for that year and it grassed up really well. And it was big, a big rock pile basically before just boulders. Yeah, it works. I mean, did you, um, how long were the pigs in there in that one area? I left them there the whole six months. But you kept putting carbon in? Yeah, I just kept adding comp, you know, like bedding from our goats. I just, yep. we, ha we had a local um, coffee house. We'd get all there coffee grinds and their leftover tea bags and whatever they had for food scraps kind of stuff and then just whatever we had out of the garden 
Yeah, if you didn't put a carbon layer in there, it would have probably been a disaster. I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's key. Like adjacent at your place. Um, the only reason why I haven't done that here in my new place is because I don't have access to wood chips. No, you. I think straw would work awesome if you had a good supply of straw you could get from a local farmer. Or better yeah. still, at, at your place and at Ben's place, what I would seriously consider doing is Greg Judy 101. I'd roll out uh, round bales. Yeah. If you roll out, if you did nothing more than roll out round bales and did nothing else, you will absolutely be shocked in six months what that will do to your place. You could take, you could take downright hard pan. When Greg, you know, when I went to Greg's school, I was like, okay, I'm seeing it up close and personal. But man, I'm, I'm having a hard time. I read all of his books and I'm like, okay, let me try this. So we did a small test plot before I'm like, okay, before we go out, you know, doing this on a larger scale. Um, and I'm like, okay, if you just, anybody can go home and try this very same thing. If you doubt me, go take, okay, you can either do um, Jeff Lawton's Instant Garden, which is basically sheet mulching, or go out there and stack up about six layers of cardboard, cover that up with a bunch of straw or hay, leave it for a year, in the hardest soil, I'm talking soil as hard as woodpecker lips, come back a year later, don't touch it, don't do anything, and then check that same area. See what happens. Not only are you gonna have worms and everything else in in, in that soil, you, if you just, and I'm, like I said, all you need is just that one test spot. If you did that, you will be shocked at the soil life that happens in there. Your nematodes, your protozoa, all those things, but What's killing most of us on our properties is that we feel like we got to go out there and put lime. We don't need to do that. We feel like we need to go out there and add all these additives. No, we don't need to do that. People like Alan Savory, Alan Nation, Greg Judy, Joel Salatin, all they're doing is really putting carbon out on the, in, in hard pan, you're just putting carbon out there, letting the animals eat it, let them trample it, let them poop and pee on it, move them out, and then the magic happens. But now if you want to put it on steroids, you throw some, because we're doing all that, you want to put it on steroids, throw some compost extract on there, and you're going to have a, you're, you're going to have to increase your stocking density, nephew. That's how good it works. We spread about 20 bales, 20 round bales last year. Curious to see how that works. So on the property we're at now, it was old forest that had been logged. We've had, we had some of it logged and cleared, so we're turning it back into pasture. So some of it, we, it's going good, and we've been working on new land last year, so we rolled out, like I said, like 20, 20 bales. It'll be interesting to see how it looks this coming spring. But That, I, I, I know you're going to have great success as long as you don't overgraze, but Ben, Jason, at your places, if you guys were to just get a single round bale, try this experiment, and I'll tell you what, if it doesn't work, I will give you double the money you spent for those <laughs> round bales. Take a single round bale, roll it out, and don't do anything else. Leave it there and then watch what happens. Watch what is the most productive area of your farm. And I guarantee you it's gonna be that area where you rolled out that round bale. It, it's as it's, it's, it's sure as gravity. So we, we actually have unrolled round bales and generally just left like a huge mess behind the cow just to see what happened. There was a spot that I worked on last year that we only had about an inch of topsoil 
and the only thing that would grow is the uh, the broom sedge. Uh, and if you know anything about that, that's one of those poverty weeds that only grows on poor soils. Yep. And this last growing season, this last summer, uh, there wasn't hardly any broom sedge. You know, the the following season after running the cow and making sure we kept her there and dropped a lot of hay and a lot of manure and it was it was kind of honestly shocking how vastly improved these sections were where we i mean it was just manure and hay that was the only thing really added to some of these spots uh i think what's interesting is the spots that were just manure and hay versus the spots that i did put down lime you couldn't even tell i'd done the lime on that that one spot so yeah it you, that's really what you need you just need the carbon and keep it keep it from sliding off the mountain when it rains i think that's our biggest problem yeah there's that and then the additional problem with it is um as long as you don't leave them there too long but that i mean these aren't even and that's the beauty y'all it's it's not anything i've come up with i'm just borrowing the ideas from uh that's greg judy 101 right there and I was like, it can't be this simple. You know, years ago, I was like, it can't be this simple. And it really is. And all we're doing is looking at the seven layers of a forest. And we go out there. you got these incredible pioneers that go out there and say, okay, hmm, what are you doing out there in nature? Because I want to take it home and copy it. And that's exactly what these people have done. They've taken what they see, the trees, drop their deciduous trees, drop their leaves. What happens? It's the fertilizer that keeps it going in a healthy forest. And in a healthy forest, you see seven layers. You got an overstory, understory, shrub layer, herbaceous layer, ground cover, vines and roots. And then I'd argue that there's a number eight. And that's the one we were talking about in the beginning of this, the fungal layer. And all of these are just easily replicated by making sure you don't make nature naked. And we also graze our stuff way too low too. I mean, we. It's, you know, it's hard to get your head around the fact when you go to Greg Judy's place or whatever, where you're walking around in waist high grass. Well, we tend to think, oh man, that's a little too high, but it's really not if you got cows out there. Now it's high if you got chickens, they don't want that. <laughs> but if you run the chickens, like Al was saying, after you run your cows, then all of a sudden, you know, the problem is the solution. And plus they're breaking up the pest cycle. So there's so many awesome holistic ideas coming full circle with all this as far as feeding your animals for free number one we got to watch our stocking density we're not always going to get it perfect you're going to overgraze but it's not the end of the world you just get it right next on the, on the next rotation and then when it comes to your ruminants i mean i'm sorry i keep saying that but when it comes to your omnivores your chickens and your pigs it becomes 10 times easier because your options now the idea is to try to get to the point where with sean and beth doherty but if you do have options, you, if you do have options where you're able to find all these incredible resources around you, then you can bring those to bear. If not to feed them 100%, at least to knock the edge off that chicken bill that's driving, you know, people want to raise their own chickens, but you're not money ahead if you're buying feed from the store. It's just knowing that those chickens were raised right and things are good. That's your benefit. But if you want to save and make money, because we've actually run the numbers on it, and the chicken tractor on steroids running meat birds, not only were the meat birds, and I'm talking buying the meat birds, not only were the the uh, the Red Ranger 
Ben, the one you were talking about, the uh, yeah, Red Rangers, not Red, Red Rangers, the Red Rangers. When we ran the numbers on it, and we counted up what we didn't have to buy in compost, and we got 21 cubic yards out of that, we actually made. And this is counting in the cost, that, and that's what at that time was three bucks a bird. So we paid three bucks a bird, processed those birds, put them in the freezer, and when you added up all the costs and my labor, because I was paying myself, I was I was pretending I was paying myself 30 bucks an hour to operate this system, we were money ahead by, I want to say by two bucks an hour. So when you, wow. when you crunch all the numbers, we were actually, if you count the money, I didn't have to spend on compost. If you count the money, you know what I'm saying? There's ancillary benefits that you get to all of this that by and large people don't consider. But I'm factoring in my labor and I'm factoring in all of this stuff and you're money ahead, but you're gonna be late, you're gonna be, it's a lot more labor. So just be cognizant of that fact. But there are ways to mitigate all these costs. It's just every single method you come up with is gonna require more out of you. I'm gonna say this, Real quick right now, plug time. Where can people find videos of the chicken tractor on steroids that you're talking about? Yeah, our YouTube channel, we got a playlist and it's called either CTOS or chicken tractor on steroids. But I'll tell you the most satisfying thing to all of this is seeing um, these other homesteads out there that said, okay, I didn't do it exactly like you. I'm doing my version of it and I had to scale it down. Or there's another person that says, okay, I have only three chickens. Or you take somebody like Eric Sider, who was the right-hand man to Jeff Lawton for all those years, and he's got a scaled-down version in a backyard in San Diego, um, in a place where you're not even supposed to have it. <laughs> the most satisfying thing is everybody looking at this chicken where I may have provided a framework for it in these playlists, and then people say, you know what? It's not gonna work out for me exactly that way, so I'm gonna adapt it to a way that works which is beautiful because it tells everybody that you don't have to follow the way I'm doing it. It's just a technique. It's just a method. And the guy who invented it, Jeff Lawton, I know he's tickled pink because his whole ambition was to evangelize this magnificent design science called permaculture. And so we were able to take it. He took it past where um, Carl Hammer brought it at Vermont Composting. We took it past where he had and now everybody else out there, and Ben, you put your twist on it that made it even more efficient in your own way. And so many other people are doing it, so it's, they can go to my YouTube channel and find it there, but I highly recommend, um, it's, it's not a, it seems a little gratuitous for everybody to say, go check me out, but honestly, there's some other people out there like Ben who have done it and have done it successfully in his own way. And there's a number of others out there as well. But if you would like to go check us out at, at our web at our YouTube channel, we got a playlist over there. It What's your YouTube channel name, Billy? Uh Perma Pastures uh, Farm. Perma P E R M A and then Pastures. I'll put your link down in the show notes on the YouTube video, so sure. check it out. Yeah, they can do that. But honestly, it's a real joy to be able to collaborate with you guys. Sadly, I wish we all lived a little bit closer, but um Sadly, you guys live about 2,000 feet below me. So I'm enjoying this cool non-humidity weather up here. We're not and, that far. Yeah, but we're only an hour and a half away. So uh, <laughs> you guys are ever, or Al, you ever over here 
You guys roll by anytime you like at Billy's Jungle Palace of Love, and we'll roll out the red carpet for you. Yeah, Billy. Um, so, yeah, man, we, we've been talking for an hour and a half, which that flew by. That did fly by. <laughs> so I appreciate all the knowledge, Billy. And uh, So one more time, Billy, how people can find you. You have a YouTube channel, and what else you got, well, we got going on? Yeah, we got, and folks, uh, in case this doesn't come out before my episode does, I'm going to have these three gentlemen on my show, the Permaculture Pimpcast, where we discuss permaculture preparedness and practical living. And it's going to be the first time ever I had three guys on at once in three <laughs> different locations. So this is going to be interesting. Um, so what does what does PIMP stand for, Billy? Yeah, it stands for just to, ma- just to make sure. Yeah, because uh, all the ladies are like, oh, my goodness, they had a PIMP on the show. We can't have any of that. No, it stands for it was it was a way to reach out to the to the kids in the hood that don't realize that this lifestyle is possible. So I had to speak their language. So in order to make it palatable for me, I had to make it into an acronym that works. And that stands for permaculture is my passion. So it was a way to reach out to those kids in the hood. And because I came up with that, I, you know, I have my mixed feelings about it. But because of it, man, I get these letters from these kids, one of them in particular that grew up in Washington, D.C., and now he's off in Virginia running a farm. And it all started because he's like, oh, man, hey, there's a pimp out here farming. Well, <laughs> he, you know, <laughs> but that's just one of many. And that's one of the beautiful things of being able to do this work is seeing people take it past where they found it. And to be able to have beautiful collaboratives that I'm able to do with you guys, whether it's processing animals or making a video together or anything like that, it's it's always a joy. And even if we have to do it virtually like we're doing right now, it's always a joy to be able to do this. And, and look, I can't tell you how honored I am to be on your program and to be the first one. I'm a fan. I listen to everything that comes out. I'm listening to you guys when I'm out doing my chores. And I'm like, it's it's just edifying and it's soothing. And I think a lot of your listeners out there probably feel the same way. It's like, I feel like I'm in the same shop with you guys, and, and and I can relate to everything you're talking about. So it's a it's a fantastic yeah. podcast. I enjoy it, and I, I guarantee the people that are listening do as well. Awesome. Yeah, I appreciate it, man. Thanks, Billy. Billy's got yeah, a good podcast too. I'm usually listening to his weekly. So if yeah, you guys haven't checked out Billy's podcast, I highly recommend it. He's got a good one. Yeah, it's usually what I'm listening to when I'm doing chores. Podcast, Billy. Well, I'm you excited. Got the perfect radio voice. <laughs> radio voice. <laughs> yeah, but I'm I'm excited to have you guys on there because I'm going to I'm going to take you guys into some deep water nephew. We're going to get We're not even going to be You guys time. don't even know it yet. It's about to go wild and it's probably going to go esoteric because what I'm finding out strangely enough on my podcast, it's crazy. Every time I start talking to me now, we're talking about permaculture preparedness and practical living, but every time I go a little bit sideways, and I bring on like a guy that survives satanic ritual abuse. Man, the people are like, dude, do more of this. And I'm like, okay. So we're going to go in the deep waters. You boys don't even know what's waiting on you. But it's about to get real on the pimp cast. And you guys come. Looking right forward on, to Billy. it. It's going right. to be a fun one. Well, we're going to end it there. Billy, thank you so much for coming on. This was a fun one. And uh, I hope everyone has an awesome week. And we'll see you guys next week. Have a good one. Later. Hey, thanks a lot for having me, fellas. It was a joy.